Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Leave it as it is, Theodore Roosevelt announced while viewing the Grand Canyon for the first time. The ages have been at work on it and man can only mar it. Roosevelt's rallying cry signaled the beginning of an environmental fight that still wages today. To reconnect with the American wilderness and with the president who courageously protected it, acclaimed nature writer and New York Times bestselling author David Gessner embarks on a great American road trip, guided by Roosevelt's crusading environmental legacy, a journey he recounts in his new book, Leave It As It Is, a journey through Theodore Roosevelt's American wilderness. Gessner travels to the Dakota Badlands, where Roosevelt awakened as a naturalist, to Yellowstone, Yosemite, and the Grand Canyon, where Roosevelt escaped during the grind of his re-election tour, and finally to Bears Ears in Utah, a monument proposed by native tribes that's embroiled in a national conservation fight. Along the way, David Gessner questions and reimagines Roosevelt's vision for today. David Gessner is author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, All the Wild That Remains. He's taught environmental writing as a Briggs Copeland lecturer at Harvard and is currently a professor and department chair at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where he founded the award-winning literary journal Ecotone. David Gessner lives in Wilmington, uh, North Carolina. David Gessner, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. That might have been the best introduction I've ever had. <laughs> well, oh, great. I, I'm I'm uh, credit that to your publisher. So they did a great yeah. job. <laughs> they did a good job. <laughs> they they did. Uh, so for, I'm asking everybody, of course, these days, uh, how are you doing with the pandemic? Well, you know, it's funny. I was a writer before all those things you mentioned related to teaching. I'd actually lived in the West in in Boulder, Colorado, and. Um, I moved back when my first book came out uh, to Cape Cod, where I where I spent a lot of time as a child. And I, when I got back there, I spent six years just as a writer, the only period I've ever had like that. And it was a little crazy. There wasn't a lot of showering. There was a lot of talking to myself. There was a lot of typing, a little bit like uh, Jack Nicholson in The Shining. And, um, and I feel like I've returned a little to my roots of that <laughs> during the last six months. And I'm lucky enough to live in a pretty beautiful place on a creek called Hewlett's Creek, which is actually where Dawson's Creek was filmed in North Carolina. Mm. So we've really, um, I have a little writing shack behind my house, and I, was, I just rebuilt it as if I was preparing the shelter in place. So that's been the good news. Um, I've had some people next to, near me sick. My mom's in a nursing home. I, I'm not immune to what's going on, but there are certain aspects of it which I want to retain after the pandemic, and you know, not not running around as much. Hopefully, get get you out here, you know, as soon as the pandemic does end. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, there's some things we can carry forward, right? That's not all hopeless. We can we can form some good habits during the pandemic and carry them forward. Well, you know, I wrote an essay early in the pandemic that appeared in a magazine called American Scholar, and it was um, it was about what we can learn from Thoreau during the pandemic, obviously our original social distancer. And one of the things was that a lot of the tools of staying at home and not running around as much, and, um, you know, I've had, I had a professor who actually wrote about Utah quite a bit, Reg Sonner, and he had a great line, we humans are an elsewhere. You know, we're always, our minds are always jumping on to the next thing. And there's been an aspect of not being able to do that at, at the time. So I concluded the essay by saying a lot of the tools we're learning in this crisis may well stand us well in the climate crisis to come because it's similar. You know, the, the challenges are similar. Mm. Uh, so when did you do this, uh, this road trip that you recount in the, in the book? Was that last year? It was 2018. Okay. Um, you know, I, I actually did my launch party on Zoom last night, and of course, Zoom went bad about 45 minutes in, which <laughs> left me stranded. But I was trying to remember these dates, and they really kind of revolve around the shift from Obama to Trump. Um, those are the key. You know, that's Bears Ears was declared in December of 2016 at the very end of Obama's second term, and that's a tradition in declarations of national monuments that you do, you, know, you do many near the very end. And then it was undeclared about eight months, nine months later in October by uh, Secretary of, then Secretary of Interior Zinke. Um, and, that, you know, and then I 
that's what spurred the trip, and I took the trip in early 2018. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about that, and, and you point out that uh, the, the very fate of the Antiquities Act is in court right now. Uh, but before we get into that, um, understand that uh, you, there, there are some parallels. Um, Theodore Roosevelt came out west. <laughs> Um, uh, parallels between you and Theodore Roosevelt, uh, you know, in, in some limited senses, um, came out west after you know uh, on a crisis, right? He, he's lost his wife, yeah. lost his mother. Uh, you came out west. I don't know if originally, but but you, you made an uh, an early journey uh, on on a you know personal crisis. Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say the reason I laughed is I thought you were going to say there were some parallels. Between T.R. and Trump, which is certainly true, you know. Yeah, we can get into in, that. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> born in Manhattan, Silver Spoon, and all that. And <laughs> they both actually. I thought it was funny in my research. I found out they that um, T.R. was also known for having small hands, as is Trump. Oh, really? <laughs> uh, but if, but we can get into it a little later because yeah. it's really, I believe, the differences that define the two men. It's the way mm-hmm. that Roosevelt grew from his beginnings. But as far as my life goes. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Massachusetts. I was kind of flailing in my 20s. I, I was trying to be a writer, and what I tell my students now is it's an endurance game. It's a long haul. It's not, you know, you don't try to be a writer, and then a month later get your first writer paycheck. You know, I it took me 15 years to publish my first book. And so I was kind of flailing, and then I found out I had testicular cancer at 29, um, I was I had radiation treatment when I was 30 in in uh in May in my hometown of Worcester Mass which is not a pretty place and during that month I got rejected by four of the five uh, graduate schools in creative writing I'd applied to and the fifth was um kind of the deus ex machina of my life uh an acceptance at Boulder and so I was kind of airlifted from Worcester Mass to Boulder Colorado and I always say when I saw the mount, I drove across country in an unregistered car because my dad didn't think it was smart to register my Buick Electra when I was soon going to be in a whole new state. And when I first saw the mountains, it was, you know, if you'd, you know, you could have put John Denver on singing Rocky Mountain. <laughs> I, I really had kind of a rebirth over the next um, six months where I, I got back in good physical shape. I, I did a lot of hiking, and that's when I first did what many Coloradans do, maybe to the annoyance of Utahns, is drove across the Continental Divide and started exploring southeast Utah. Hmm. What, what was the pole there, do you think, and for others? For the West? Yeah, to, to, well, to southeast Utah. Oh, my God, you know, I, I was, you know, a lot of people talk about it who haven't even seen Utah and haven't, you know, maybe they've seen a Star Trek film where they're landing on a, a planet that's filmed in Utah. <laughs> And to, you know, the first was just the sheer physical difference and the excitement of it to, you know, to, to sometimes, like, for instance, in Cedar Mesa, to hike down into these canyons rather than up uh, into mountains. And then I was just talking to somebody yesterday about the experience of first hiking with a good buddy of mine, Rob Bleiberg, for a couple miles. And he very wisely, like a dad trying to surprise a kid, didn't tell me what we were going to find along the trail. And, of course, then you would have called it an Anasazi village, right? Um, Native Pueblans, I guess we call it now, but it was a Anasazi, you know, just um, small community of houses tucked up under uh, the sandstone ledge. And to have to see that, in you know, in the middle of, we hadn't seen a single person on the hike in the middle of a, of a wilderness, just was so powerful, and powerful, particularly compared to kind of the disnification of a lot of parks and going to places where you know what to expect. So the jolt of surprise was part of it, too. And then after that time, I just kept coming back on my own and exploring more and more. And of course, another part of the appeal, like a lot of people, I read Desert Solitaire along the way and got my Ed Abbey fix, and um, and suddenly I couldn't keep away. Mm. And it's uh, you. Uh, the previous book, you you talk about Ed, Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The original title was, which we didn't keep, was um, Father Wallace and Uncle Ed. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I and and 
with all my books, there's a personal element, like I'm, I'm going in search of something. And with that book, I, I had recently turned 50, and I'm the chair of my creative writing department and a father now. And, um, and so I was kind of torn between my inner Stegner and my inner Abbey. Because pre- in my previous life, I'd been a little more Abbey-like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was, I guess in a way, the book was about growing up a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with David Gessner. The latest book is uh, just out now, is uh, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. Uh, so uh, let's jump into the, the parallel that you thought I was going for, that uh, Teddy okay. Roosevelt and Trump. Uh, so you mentioned some of the similarities. I hadn't really thought of that, right? Both New Yorkers. Uh, what are some of the other similarities before we get into the differences? Well, one big one, you know, one of the famous quotes of Alice Roosevelt, uh, Theodore's daughter, was my father wanted to be the bride at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral, and the baby at every christening. <laughs> and, um, you know, he was a sinkhole for attention. Um, I was worried about whether the book would be timely or not, because when I was finishing the book, Elizabeth Warren was still running, and she'd just been asked who she would like as her running mate at anyone in history. And she said Teddy Roosevelt, because he was brave. And... Also, Edmund Morris, the great Roosevelt biographer, had just died. And I was like, wow, that's a lot of Roosevelt in the news. Well, it's nothing compared to right now. <laughs> We've got uh, uh, Yosemite or Yosemite, both ways that Mr. Trump pronounced Yosemite. We've got John Muir under fire um, by his own you know, the club he founded or co-founded. Uh, we've got Roosevelt's statue coming down in front of the... Museum of Natural History, American Museum of Natural History. And, you know, we are very much still in the mix. And, of course, the Great American Outdoors Act is, you know, I, I believe Trump's line was, I'm as good as he his or almost, you know, some inarticulate um, comparison of himself to the great conservationist president. So they both loved attention. They both were known as bullies. But as I said earlier, the differences really define them. Because what you have with Roosevelt, starting with his time going west, is this broadening. Uh, to bring Wallace Stegner's name back up, uh, he would have said that Roosevelt was a grower. He was a constant reader. At one point, he was reading a book a night. He, as police commissioner in New York, started to really explore the kind of what he called the underclass, and his policies turned leftward from then on. And he kind of rode the progressive tide through his presidency. And then when he ran again as a bull moose, he had a platform that would have made Bernie blush. So, you know, I get a lot of things I'll post on Facebook and they'll, you know, I'll get back. Wasn't he just a racist, sexist pig? And I'm like, well, that's part of the story. (laughs) But part of the story is we get to say that and we are where we are because of the policies, you know, that, that he put into place. And the other great difference, of course, is, uh, Roosevelt grew up not wanting to be a statesman or soldier, but to be a naturalist like his hero Charles Darwin. And he studied birds, and he, um, and he studied nature as a young man, and he always believed in science. So I often find myself thinking, what if he could be leading us right now? And what if someone who believed in science and actually was a scientist himself at times um, could be in charge? And also somebody who was incredibly articulate, who could take issues and make them into galvanizing, inspiring um, phrases that would it would excite people to action. So I always say with, with environmentalism, he not only was our greatest fighter, but he created the arena in which the fight was fought. I wonder what your, uh, you mentioned the American Museum of Natural History that took down the, the, the statue of Theodore Roosevelt, uh, which, and this kind of goes to the, you know, the broader moment. Uh, how do we memorialize uh, our heroes? Uh, and, you know, all of them have flaws. So how, yeah. how do we make that judgment? You know, too many flaws, uh, too, you know, uh, right. sending the wrong message versus, okay, right. generally good, but but uh, we continue to honor them. Are, are we judging too much by our own standards uh, versus yeah, the, the great, standards of great, the time? Yeah, great, great question. I mean, it's like, I feel like we've become amateur St. Peter's where we're, we're consigning people to heaven or hell, like on our... You know, um, and I, I think it used to be somewhat common sense. 
that we would judge people by the kind of by their own times. Um, we didn't expect people before Newton to talk about gravity, right? You know, it's just it was it was pretty much okay. Well, we're going to give them a benefit of the doubt. We seem to have thrown that out the window. Um, in the case of the Museum of Natural History, you know, I've long said that I think Roosevelt himself would have supported taking down that statue. He was never a big fan of statues in general, and he certainly wouldn't want like what was worst about him to be displayed. On the other hand, the museum has renamed its Hall of Biodiversity after him, and that's great. You know, take what's best about him and celebrate that. And, you know, I feel like um, someone who saved 230 million acres of public land deserves to be celebrated for, for that achievement. What was the objection, uh, or you know, what was the impetus to for taking down the statue? Um, he's walking um, between uh, a Native American man and, I believe, some people write African American, but I think it's an African man, nearly naked, and they're kind of in this subservient position while he's up on a horse. So to them, and I think people have been making this complaint for a long time, probably since the statue went up. To, to, to them, it spoke to what was worst about Roosevelt, which is this kind of another similarity with Trump, this kind of America first um, imperialistic view, like we're, we're the shining city on the hill and we're going to, you know, one of his, one of his, worst sins as far as I'm concerned, and it's particularly relevant to this book that deals a lot with Native American land, is his attitude toward indigenous people. And to get back to your question about how we judge these things, I like to go to figures of the past usually. I don't even consider myself a biographer. I say I'm a biographical adventurer, and there's a selfish component to what I'm doing. I'm trying to go, like for instance, I was going to Roosevelt for this book because I wanted to become more of an activist, more of a fighter. So I had a, a use for going to this figure of the past. But I, as a biographical adventurer, I allow my attitudes toward these figures to fluctuate. I don't feel like I have to put a supreme judgment in. So there's a point in the book where I say, I'm not going to defend his attitude toward Native peoples because it is indefensible. So I'm just going to lay it out there. And a lot of biographers will bring up a flaw make an excuse for it and kind of move briskly on. And I said, I'm not doing that here because this, you know, this is, uh, this is an instance where Roosevelt wasn't just of his time, because Manifest Destiny was 50 years old, you know, in, in 1900 when he, um, 1901 when he becomes president. And he's still clinging to Manifest Destiny. So that's what an instance where he's behind his time. Uh, certainly his environmental vision was one where he was ahead of his time. Let's take a break. When we come back, more, of course, with uh, David Gessner. Uh, the new book is Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. You're welcome to join this conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More with David Gessner following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and Salt Lake City Weekly, a Utah news source since 1984, covering news, politics, music, and more in Salt Lake City and beyond. Available weekly at 1,800 locations across the Wasatch Front or online at cityweekly.net. Support also comes from Global Village Gifts, now located at 53 East 100 North in Logan. Celebrating Nativity Night, showcasing hundreds of nativities from around the world. Today, November 5th, 6th, and 7th, with prearranged 20-minute private shopping hours. Details at globalvillagegifts.org. Hey, it's Luke Burbank. This week on Livewire, we talk to journalist and activist Jose Antonio Vargas... If you were actually to compare what citizenship is, I would argue that undocumented people exhibit a greater amount of citizenship than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> Don't miss this week's Livewire from PRX. Saturday evenings at 5 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with author David Gessner 
Uh, he's the author of 10 books, including the New York Times bestseller, All the Wild That Remains. And uh, he uh, is professor and department chair at the University of North Carolina at Wilmington, where he founded the award-winning literary journey Ecotone and uh, lives in Wilmington. Um, and uh, not on physical book tour right now, I, I'd expect, right, David Gessner, because of uh, right. COVID, but uh, uh, virtual and doing some of these interviews. We appreciate you being with us today. Uh, Leave It As It Is, by the way, is what uh, Theodore Roosevelt uh, said when he viewed the, the Grand Canyon, right? Yeah, that's the moment he, it's kind of where the book starts. I, I, you know, the, the book threads three main things. My journey west with my nephew Noah, who's 21 and just graduated from college in North Carolina and never been really out into these lands before, um, with um, uh, the, the story of Roosevelt and the Antiquities Act and kind of the current state of the, you know, of, of the Antiquities Act and National Monuments. And so the book has four interludes, kind of as a nod to the great Roosevelt biographer Edmund Morris, that are kind of written in the third person as Roosevelt. And it starts with him on the edge of the Grand Canyon before he gives his speech. And one of the fascinating things about it is he's written most of the speech and he hasn't seen the Grand Canyon ever. So we talked about my seeing the Anasazi village you know, you know what it's like seeing Grand Canyon for the first time. So he goes for a horseback ride. He's a great birder, and he names all the birds he sees. Um, and he peers over the edge. And I speculate that he changed his speech and made it even more inspiring. And it's this great rousing. You know, it's like the Gettysburg Address of environmental speeches, and includes the famous lines about children's children's children which, of course, has been a Native American ideal of nature, too, but he's really articulating it for the wider American public for the first time. The idea that by saving land and not building on it and preserving it for the future, we're tied directly by our blood um, to that future, a future that's going to be a better future simply by having not done anything. And I found that leave it as it is is a very handy saying um, I think it applies to the pandemics. We should have said that with those bats, you know, leave leave them as they are. Don't don't kick up you know microbes and and uh, dust and and it's handy around the house too. You know, I can bark it at my daughter. Leave it as it is. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, and and in fact, there's a funny story where you know you always near the end when your book's coming out, the publicists get involved and they want to change its title. And they had, you know, some kind of airy sort of title. They wanted to change it to, like, the, you know, the beautiful wilderness or something like that. And I wrote a long rebuttal saying why we should keep it. And, of course, the last phrase of the rebuttal was, leave it as it is. <laughs> leave it as it is. That's good. Yeah. Uh, Roosevelt went on to say the ages have been at work on it and man can only mar it. Uh, it's interesting. You mentioned, I believe, um, if if Roosevelt had not protected this, by the way, using the Antiquities Act, and we'll get into that, um, uh, this could have been, <laughs> Grand Canyon could have had a, a very uh, different future. This could have been uh, become uh, very easily, uh, very kitschy, very, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, a, a totally different uh, future for the Grand Canyon. Yeah, you know, the the great fear for people then, that for, for the environmentalists of the time, was that something would become another Niagara Falls. And if you've ever been there, you know, with the honeymoon suites, and, you know, it's an example. And it was, even then, an example of taking a natural wonder and then, you know, turning it into a schlock, basically. And so there were already, you know, hotels and things starting to creep in, and and he came thundering in. Uh, so I want to talk about the Antiquities Act. Uh, Roosevelt did use this, right, to, to create a, a national monument, later became a national park. Uh, so so uh, tell us where the, the, the case is. Uh, the, you know, the Obama created the Bears Ears, uh, Trump yeah. greatly reduced it. Now Antiquities Act is, is in court. Yeah, I'll give you a quick history, which was basically, I mean, people, listeners, 
I, I feel like I'm in sophisticated listener land on this subject. Um, I did, no offense to New York Public Radio, which I did a couple of days ago, but that was probably like the bunny slope compared to you guys in terms of <laughs> knowing about such things. And, you know, being, I mean, Utah's so in the thick of this fight in so many ways and, and has so many fascinating, like I was, while I was out there, Willie Gray Eyes was being challenged whether over whether he was a citizen, and the case came down for a while to where his umbilical cord was buried. And I was like, only in Utah this could happen. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But so Richard Weatherall, who's famous for his family having discovered, in air quotes, um, Mesa Verde, and then went on to um, excavate many of the other sites um, in the Four Corners, um, was a controversial figure, and um, there were worries about the looting, particularly the European looting of Western sites and in, in, uh, native dwellings and, and, and native ruins. And that started to build um, as an idea, and through the work of a couple um, uh, promoters and, uh, of the idea and, and congressmen, the Antiquities Act was um, was passed in 1906, and in the wording of the Antiquities Act, there's the phrase, the discretion of the president, and in fact, it's the only real environmental act that the president can use without, without appealing to Congress, without um, just solely on his own. But I said in the book, using the words discretion with this particular president, um, Teddy, uh, wasn't wasn't a common link between those two. So he just went right at it, and he started um, with Devil's Tower, famous for Close Encounters of uh, Third Kind, and 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 he just um, uh, declared do- uh, monument after monument. And that continued, and there became a tradition of declaring near the end of your term as president, which is what Obama did, um, the backstory um, in December of 2016. The backstory for me was, as I mentioned, I'd really grown attached to those lands during my years in Colorado, and I'd written about it. I wrote a book called "Under the Devil's Thumb" about uh, my time in the West, and I was very fortunate to be asked by um, Kirsten Allen of Tory House Press. Um, to contribute to a book called Red Rock Testimony that she and Stephen Trimble were bringing to Congress and distributing the um, all the members of Congress that argued for Bears Ears being made a national monument. Now, of course, the work on Bears Ears had been done by Native tribes, uh, the Bears Ears Intertribal Council, for years before that, where they'd studied not just the land, but the Antiquities Act itself. And they'd seen that it was a good marriage of the act with the landscape. And so when the when the um, when Bears Ears was declared, um, I on a small level, I was like the token Easterner in the collection that was distributed to Congress. I celebrated and felt a very personal victory. But you can imagine that the um, that the five tribes, led by the Navajo, were ecstatic about this um, development. So then, fast forward ahead seven months or eight months, and standing in front of a picture of Theodore Roosevelt on Roosevelt's birthday, October 27th, um, Ryan Zinke undeclares 85% of that land. And, of course, as you know, they also undeclared much of Grand Staircase Escalani. So those cases went to court. Uh, The Bears Ears became central to my book. Um, what I really wanted to do was find a way to make some sort of connection between Roosevelt, who, as I mentioned before, did not have an enlightened view of Native Americans at all, and Roosevelt's love of nature with what was happening in Bears Ears, and trying to figure out if I could create any kind of confluence. I didn't know if I could. Um, and what I decided was what had happened in Bears Ears uh, a new, more inclusive, more diverse um, view of the Antiquities Act was really taking Roosevelt's original idea and revising it 
and making it better. You know, they called the parks America's best idea. Well, I said, here's a better idea, what's going on in Bears Ears. So to have that better idea and taken and destroyed, essentially, um, was, you know, was what really set me off to write this book, and which enraged a lot of people and also led to the lawsuits that are currently, this week, this month, crawling through a District of Columbia courthouse in front of a judge. And what's really being decided, the central question, is can one president undo the land that, or unsave the land that a previous president saved? Um, and that's what has been done in this administration. And if that were ever decided that that could be done, it would basically gut the most powerful tool a president has for saving land, which is the Antiquities Act. Of course, one of the uh, one of the arguments against the Antiquity Act, at least in in modern times, is uh, this shouldn't be a presidential power. This should be Congress. Uh, what do you say to that? Right, right. Um, well, I mean, it's kind of a a balancing thing, right? I mean, national parks and uh, so much goes through Congress, and it's the um, you know the other argument that is made often is the original Antiquities Act was about protecting the antiquities itself and, uh, you know, the smallest possible area around it. But um, Roosevelt blew that out of the water pretty early on. And when that got challenged in court, when he declared like 800,000 acres um, of the Grand Canyon a national monument before it was a national park, um, the ruling in the Supreme Court was that um, he was within his rights to do that, that that, um, that too was land that was antiquities land, even if it didn't contain you know, the, a particular dwelling or ruin. Mm. So yeah, there's that, you know, there, it's certainly been, I mean, there are howls of protests when anything gets um, declared. And it's, it's true. I would say that often, and this is the case with Grand Staircase Escalante, you have local counties and local towns coming around to supporting something that they perhaps didn't support at first. I'll probably get phone calls about that by somebody who's really pissed off about the, the monument, so <laughs> we'll see. Yeah, it, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it is a very divisive issue. For example, of... Uh, what was it? Last summer, I was in Blanding, uh, and uh, oh, yeah. many residents there. Their worry is, their worry was, uh, Bears Ears, as currently constituted, would attract tourists, and that they'd become Moab, which they, you know, yeah. if you've been to yeah. Moab, yeah. it becomes overrun. And um, uh, but uh, yeah, well, that's a legit, you know. And I think there are some environmentalists who had the same fear with Bears Ears. I mean, the advantage of a national monument versus a national park is they tend to have less sex appeal and tend less likely to have that happen. Um, and, you know, it's not as spectacular as the landscape is. It's, it's a hidden landscape, too. And I think you would have to ultimately do, basically do the equivalent of zoning, where you'd have certain sites that were the most visited ones, and then certain where you'd need, you know, a backcountry pass. Um, so I, I think I, I try to air that side of things, too, in the book, yeah. Mm. Now, as you point out, uh, if the courts, and this will, I don't know, let's go all the way to the Supreme Court perhaps, but um, if the courts rule in favor of the Trump administration, uh, then we perhaps get into a very schizophrenic situation, right? One president declares, uh, four years later another president undoes, uh, right. And that, that that becomes very chaotic. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons. I mean, uh, we'll see what happens in November. But um, the, the hope is, I mean, at this level, um, it could be simply, they could simply overrule it or they could be overruled post-election. And I'm hoping it doesn't get to that um, that point because, like you said, what's that going to lead to? You, you know, I, I always say that the reason um, that Trump went after Grand Staircase was because of the last name of the president who declared it, Clinton. <laughs> you know, you, you could have 
people with gripes um, undeclaring something the last person did. And, and imagine that situation. It's, it's crazy. Let's take another break. We'll come back with uh, David Gessner. Uh, he, the book is Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. Um, and uh, you can join us by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com with your question or comment. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is supported in part by our members and Utah State University Extension 4-H, receiving grants from the Utah STEM Action Center for Computer Science and Robotics Clubs in the Washington County School District. The grants will run for three years to assist with the challenges of intergenerational poverty. And the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau, showcasing the great outdoors with hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more available online at explorelogan.com or visit 199 North Main in Logan. The next frontier in artificial intelligence? Machines that can paint and compose music. Are they any good? When we see some of the things that get generated or hallucinated by deep neural nets, you know, it's a really trippy and weird kind of art, and it's not something that I've seen any person paint. It is new and different. The future of artificial creativity, next time on To the Best of Our Knowledge from PRX. Sunday mornings from 9 to 11 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in August. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we're talking with uh, the writer David Gessner. Uh, his latest book is uh, called Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness, and in part recounts David Gessner's journey through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. Uh, I want to start this segment, uh, David Gessner, uh, talking about, you talk about a confluence between Native American ideals and this American idea America's best idea of the park and monument uh, ideal. What if you talk a bit about that? Well, when I decided, when I was angry enough after the undeclaration of Bears Ears, and I decided, for one thing, I decided I'm going to write a book about it. I knew it was going to focus on the Antiquities Act, and I also knew it was going to weave in Roosevelt's biography. So I just headed out. I hadn't sold the book yet. I headed out in January of 2018, and I landed actually in Salt Lake City, and I drove um, back east, and the first person I talked to was Regina Lopez Whiteskunk. Um, a couple friends of mine had pointed me in her direction, and it was probably the best interview of my whole experience um, writing the book. Um, she had been on the Bears Ears Council, um, and she talked about the process of studying the Antiquities Act, I said to her, oh, I have a friend back in North Carolina, my neighbor. He says, this isn't right for the, saving bears isn't right for the Antiquities Act. And she said, I'd like to talk to your friend. <laughs> you know, we, we, we studied and we argued um, and, and we worked on it. And she made a point of saying that uh, this was not about uh, any kind of we want our land back um, argument that it was trying to use the actual tools the government, the United States government, had provided just for a different purpose. And she went, she was actually in D.C. Um, lobbying for this. And she said while she was there, you know, she, some assistant to Obama would come over and she'd talk to them, and he'd bring these little chocolates that Obama kept in his office. <laughs> and she said she felt so empowered and so much a part of the system which is why later she, you know, even though she's an incredibly resilient woman, she she um, was obviously deeply hurt by the undeclaration. But so I started to think about that, and I went down and um, and spent a lot of time. You mentioned Blanding and Bluff, and I thought, let's see what's you know what's the idea behind this? Because if you in the back of the book, I actually have the entire declaration by the Obama administration which I think, let's see, it was, it was taken from what the Bears Ears Intertribal Council um, wrote, and then I just want to get the name right. Um, I think it's Christy Goldfuss, um, who was working for Obama, was one, of the, was one of the writers of this document, and it reads more like a prose poem 
than it does an official document. You have uh, descriptions of the landscape, of the phonology of the place. Phonology is the phenomenon of the year as the year goes by, of the history of um, the different tribes that were there. And, you know, it's a spectacular document. And so my trip uh, during the summer with my nephew Noah culminated at the Bears Ears celebration in the meadow below Bears Ears. And I've often thought that um, land is our common ground, that it's the overlap, you know, many conservatives care about land, maybe many liberals care about land, many Native people compare about land, many people in Blanding and Bluff both care about land. And that particular land had been the meeting place of tribes for thousands of years. So it was this moment where I actually was climbing up um, the western bears here, and I was thinking about what we're doing here. We can, we can cancel, you know, in our cancer culture, I totally understand why we criticize Roosevelt, and we should, for the things that we that he deserves it. But the Antiquities Act and the park ideal, if not America's best idea, are still pretty damn good ideas. And putting land aside, uh, whatever, you know, whatever the politics and the, 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 the origin of it has proven to us a kind of lifeline. It provides us with a sort of potential Noah's Ark for our future in terms of in a time of climate change. So there was something good about that ideal. And then to combine it with these aspects that were in the Bears Ears proposal, which included using the land uh, for medicinal purposes, for plants, for ceremony. I love that idea. I love the idea of not going to the land as a tourist, as a just, you know, oh, look, we'll read this sign and move on, but a deeper connection to the land. So I thought, here's a way to revise Roosevelt's original idea, and that's when I saw the kind of possibility of this confluence of, of these two things. And it really excited me, which um, it's threatened right now, but um, you know, I say somewhere in the book that we have to protect the idea of the Antiquities Act as fiercely as we protect the land itself. Mm-hmm. So that, that's really where that came from. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you talk about this. There's the idea of the American West, right? And there's the reality. Sure. Sometimes they diverge. Sometimes they come closer together. So for you personally, and maybe in contrast with, with Teddy Roosevelt, what uh, does the idea match reality? Well, you probably know more than I do about that. Maybe you should talk about it. You live, you live there. Um, I just, you know, for me, I had a very, very starkly romantic view of the West. Um, and in fact, Roosevelt said when he moved to the Badlands, it is here the romance of my life began. I mean, to go to him rather than me for a second, you know, he's 24 years old. In a 24-hour period, he's lost his wife and his mother. And basically, he just heads out to the Badlands and ranches, but also hunts vigorously, or, or some would say um, sadistically. <laughs> he was so aggressive as a hunter. He throws himself into the work of, of, you know, he'll be in the saddle for 24 hours. He he loves what he's doing. You know, he's got that kind of childhood love of nature, and he loves being out in the wilderness. Um, but he's also writing books while he's doing it. That's the crazy thing about Roosevelt. He's got, you know, he ends up writing like 45 books. And there's one scene that I, I can't do the interview without mentioning, which is some boat thieves have stolen his little scow on the little Missouri, and it's chock full of ice. It's the middle of winter, and they take off. And he and his um, ranch hands, his two ranch hands from Maine, actually, rebuild the boat and go chasing after them in the middle of winter on this ice chalk filled um, little Missouri. And Roosevelt brings along Anna Karenina and reads it in the back of the boat in between chasing the boat thieves, which they eventually catch, and he marches to jail. So, you know, it's this combination of like kind of exhilarating adventure and intellectual pursuit that I love so much, and to circle it back around, you know, I moved west to be a writer and lived in El Dorado Springs, a little town um, south of Boulder, and I just loved the fact that it was such an outdoor culture and that, you know, I felt like the freak 
back where I lived in Worcester, because I like trees. And out there, I felt like I'd found my lost tribe, like of people who love to get out and camp and, and um, be out in nature. So that's what the West began as for me. You know, like a lot of people, like anyone as they get older, as I learned more, as I learned that the BLM land that I was camping on was also the home of thousands of cows that were living living on the cheap, or at least their owners were, and, you know, started to pull the curtain back a little bit. Um, and what really changed for me wasn't so much reading Stegner as it was reading Bernard DeVoto, who I devote a chapter to in this book. You know, DeVoto, who famously said that the, the motto of the Western rancher was, get out and give us money. <laughs> so, you know, and he mm-hmm. talked about the socialism of the of ranch land. So there's, you know, that was part of my education. Um, it's actually moved back a little bit in the other direction at this point, but it's never, you know, you look out and especially as an Easterner, you look out and you see the vast, what you perceive as its emptiness and you attribute it certain things that maybe aren't true. You don't realize at first how dry it is and how dependent on the small amount of water it gets and things like that. Um, in fact, the book ends uh, the next summer when I come back out and I get an opportunity to fly in a small plane with just the pilot um, all around the West from Colorado to Utah to Montana to Wyoming and see it from above. And on the one hand, I'm just saying, oh, my God, look at this space. This is the definitive thing. It's so fantastic. And it, it also, you know, as while Stegner called it the geography of hope, it's also hopeful that there's still so much space. But then, of course, you start seeing all the, the dead trees from, from Beetle Kill, and you you, know, you fly over and you see the fracking, and you see that, you know, particularly in Wyoming, you see um, so, so much of the scarred landscape. So I, I think for me it's always kind of being batted between those two things, the beauty and exhilaration and the kind of... Um, anger at the way that beauty has been despoiled. And that's certainly a large part of what motivated the book. Were there uh, surprises? You you set out with, uh, I guess, I'm sure, ideas of how this is going to go. Or were there su- yeah. surprises for, for you? That's funny because, you, you know, I told my students last night, I can't remember who said it, it's a great line, that good writers make outlines and great writers throw them away. <laughs> <laughs> and... You know, I had this all, I had the whole trip kind of mapped out, and then different things started happening. For instance, my traveling companion was Noah, my nephew, who's 6'4", and says about two words every three states as we travel. Um, Just totally laconic character. And I was listening by tape to uh, Roosevelt speeches and to biographies of Roosevelt, and Noah was so sick of Roosevelt by the time we reached, say, Ohio, that he, you know, he he, he did, never wanted to hear the phrase "manly vigor" again. You know, he his idea of a hero, he told me, was the dude in the Big Lebowski, and Teddy was just too um, crazed and ambitious and shrill for him. So, so a surprise was that when we did get to the West, uh, Noah just kind of lit up and really began to. You know, he'd say now two sentences every three states. So that was a sign that he was truly exhilarated. Um, and in the Badlands, we woke up the first morning and had a buffalo about twenty yards from our tent, and you know, and he was he was just laughing and, and loving it. And um, and you know, and I thought, well, we can justly criticize Roosevelt, but we also have to say that we wouldn't have these buffalo here without him. He saved something, and that that's quite a sentence. You know, I'd like to have said I saved something. So I guess the part of the surprise was just uh, kind of the growing closeness with my, with my nephew and the, the, the just um, reliving, you know, he was 21, reliving my earlier first trip west through his eyes. Yeah, let's uh, imagine that was a, a joy. It really was, yeah. yeah. By the way, uh, there there are Teddy Roosevelt impersonators. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny is I mentioned my book launch was last night, 
So we strolled in, uh, Noah and I strolled into the town of Medora, which is where Roosevelt first went when he went to the Badlands. And it's kind of like a Disneyland where Teddy is Mickey Mouse, Medora. And, you know, everybody, Teddy this, Teddy that. So we were on the way to our campsite, and we saw this building that we thought was a museum. And we went in, and it was an employee center. We said, oh, we'll just, I'll just use the bathroom here before we get to our campsite. And we bumped into Teddy Roosevelt on the way there. And, and sure enough, um, he was in full Roosevelt dress. He was a professional impersonator. And we, we talked to him for a while, and he recited the famous Man in the Arena speech for us. And I got to know this guy, and he actually spoke at my Zoom launch last night. I had him, you know, I started and spoke for the first 20 minutes, and then he came barging in. And <laughs> one thing about Teddy, um, you probably could tell that I like to talk, but uh, nothing like him. They <laughs> called him the Gatling gun of conversation. You know, just like, and his talks didn't last an hour. They lasted four or so. <laughs> so, um, you know, he had his flaws for sure, but I, I like to look at him as like this kind of, you know, when I first started to think about the book, I said, what am I going to learn from him? And, you know, and one was get into wild places, get into some fights, um, drink a lot of coffee. That was a thing I learned about him, that he started drinking coffee in the morning and he had his last cup before he energetically went to sleep. And he's the person who invented the phrase that Maxwell House used as their motto, good to the last drop. <laughs> uh, he also knew, you know, he also was told by a doctor when he was like 19, your heart's bad, you're not going to last that long, you've got to take it easy in your life. So, of course, he went out and did exactly the opposite, including those late years, you know, going down to the Amazon and... Um, and actually exploring a lot of the Southwest, too, mm. um, at the time. But he died at 60, and, uh, you know, um, had some dark years there near the end. He was, um, his more bellicose, warlike qualities kind of came out as World War One approached. And um, so all that pent-up energy kind of turned inward a little bit at the end. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, fascinating. We'll have to leave the conversation there. We're out, out of time. I, I, it rings in my ear. He energetically went to sleep. I guess he did everything with energy, right? So, yeah, um, bully. Yeah, bully. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, fa- fascinating book. David Gessner's new book is "Leave It As It Is: A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness." That's out now, and you can find out more about David Gessner at his website, uh, davidgessner.net. Uh, David Gessner, it's been a pleasure yep. as always. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. And uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Utah State University, declaring 2020 the Year of the Woman, celebrating often unknown Aggie women, those who served as pioneers from the institution's earliest days to those paving the way for future generations of leaders and innovators. Support also comes from USU's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, offering the state's only degree in international agribusiness, combining agricultural knowledge and the political and cultural dimensions of business. Information at caas.usu.edu. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard at upr.org.